Hello, OIS podcast audience. Uh, I'm happy to be speaking with you again. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Rob Rothman. I am a, uh, I'm an ophthalmologist uh, clinically practicing as a glaucoma specialist um, for about 50% of my time and the remainder of my time I spend managing Infocus Capital Partners, which is an ophthalmic-focused venture capital fund. Uh, we have 13 uh, investments inside of the ophthalmology space, and we are currently planning the launch of our, our second fund. It is my pleasure today to uh, have with us somebody whom I have spoken to a couple of times in the past um, and whose company is developing technology that I pray will make it to my clinical doorstep sooner rather than later. Um, but for today's podcast, we have Max Ostermeyer, uh, who is a serial entrepreneur and currently serves as the CEO and founder of Implant Data Ophthalmic Products. So Max, thank you for joining us today. Uh, and I'm looking forward to having everybody hear your story. Absolutely. Thanks you. Uh, thank you. Thank you very much, Rob, for having me. So, so Max, before we get into what um, your what Implant Data is doing, um, I think it's useful, and I, I I think it's important for people to know who you are. And and as you and I both know, um, leaders of companies are critically um, tied to the success of that um, of that enterprise. And you have a very long and storied history inside of building successful companies. And, and I think it's it's really helpful for people to to know the past and what you've done before yeah. and how you ended up at Implant Data. Absolutely. Happy to uh, give you a little bit of background about myself. So my background is I do have an MBA and started in finance controlling. But after three or four years, I really decided that's just too boring to me, you know, because you do the year in, year out, every time is the same. So I really decided I want to go more into more, uh, business development roles. So I was uh, instrumental in forming a U.S. German biotech company, uh, which was in DNA, RNA synthesis reagents. That was back in the 90s. Um, and then we built up that company. I also lived for a couple of years in Boulder, Colorado, uh, and we built up that company and uh, finally sold it to Sigma Aldrich. And then I returned back to Germany and thought, okay, what's the next thing to do for me? And I, I, I became aware of a medical device startup company, which was really distressed. And they have been de developing a, a portable device for detection of traumatic brain injuries. Um, so uh, I kind of acquired that company and uh, we finished the product, obtained CE marking, started to work also with CFDA and also started to work with the DARPA to qualify that product for military use because we found out, you know, that traumatic um, brain injury is a key injury in the, uh, in the Middle East uh, wars. And so there was a huge need for better um, detection of traumatic brain injuries. And so we worked with the DARPA and then I was approached by a US company, which again acquired that company. Uh, then I, by incidents, became aware of a technology which came out from the automotive industry, tire pressure sensors. And I said, hmm, that's interesting, you know, because I realized uh, that also in, in, in traumatic brain injury or in, in, in um, neuro, neurosurgery, ICP, intracranial pressure, is an important parameter, um, and especially also in hydrocephalus patients. So we took the technology and developed it for uh, measuring telemetrically the pressure in the brain. 
and that worked out quite well. And we have been approached then by Kotman and Shurtleff, which at the time was the um, company within j and uh, commercializing hydrocephalus management products, and they acquired the technology. And we said, then we thought, okay, what's next? And already at that time, we realized hmm, there's a huge need also in eye care in glaucoma patients because glaucoma patients have a huge problem. They have increased eye pressure, but there is no really good way to obtain real life data because today you can only measure the pressure in the office. And I was so surprised to learn, you know, that is happening only every few months, but in between office visits, nobody really knows what's going on with the IC, uh, with the intraocular pressure. Is it really under control? And, and uh, so that was the most amazing experience uh, to me that um, in year 2000, there is still so much unknown uh, in glaucoma care, and that really triggered our activities to also utilize that technology for measuring telemetrically pressures inside the body, also for the eye. And that was kind of the starting point. I, I've talked to many um, ophthalmologists uh, in Germany, in Europe, in the US, and everyone confirmed, yeah, there is a need. Please, Max, go ahead. And, uh, that's a, it's a, it's a long, long-term dream, you know, to really have a better understanding about IOP. So I think that's maybe a little bit longer than I thought, uh, but that's, you know, my travel uh, or my journey so far. For listeners of the OIS podcast, we invite you to register for the upcoming Ophthalmic Innovation Summit at SECO on March 1st in Atlanta. Join the leading ODs and industry executives to see carefully selected startup companies present therapies and development for glaucoma, dry eye, presbyopia, myopia, and retinal diseases. To register, visit www.ois.net and use promo code OISPODCAST to save $100. Don't miss out. Register to attend today. I think there are a lot of young entrepreneurs who listen to these podcasts who want to hear a little bit about the story. How do you go from being an MBA working in finance to understanding the complexities of, you know, you know, becoming a life science entrepreneur? You know, you you you, you sold a company, you know, in the medical space to, um, you know, a DARPA funded entity uh, at some point, you know, during this journey for traumatic brain injury. And, you know, how do you learn those skills? I mean, did you just develop them on the job? Did you do homework? I mean, I think people want to hear that little bit of a transition. I think going from I, finance into this space is common, but I don't think yeah. people understand how you get from point A to point B. I think along the journey, I really had the luck to find really good mentors and, and, and experienced people giving me advice. And, and, and I think, of course, I'm very always very open for advice. And uh, if there is something I don't know, I look, okay, who, is, who, can, who can help me with that? But I was really lucky from the very beginning when I made the decision, I want to get out of finance into more kind of business development roles, uh, that I was really, um, that I was able to find mentors and people, senior people really supporting me and, 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 and giving me advice and, and, and giving me direction. And I think over time, of course, you learn also a lot of on, on the job and you, you do also a lot of mistakes. I think that's, uh, that happens. Uh, but I think uh, the most important thing is to learn out of the mistakes you take and not giving up and, and, and keep going. I think, you know, personally, I was all, I'm always interested. In, I'm a very, very curious guy. You know, I really uh, like, uh, like technologies a lot uh, and what, 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 how they can help how, they, how technologies can help people, I think. And that really was always my interest. Yeah, I think it's a unifying feature of most successful um, CEOs in the life science space 
So I think that that's intellectual curiosity is critical to, yeah. you know, having, ha having success in the space, but, but so the technology, or at least the core technology that you decided would have applicability for glaucoma comes from, um, automotive, uh, right. concept at first. Is that correct? Right. Correct. Correct. You know, that's really the starting point, you know, and of course, uh, measuring the pressure in the inside the body, you're talking about very tiny pressures where in the car, you know, you have in the tar car tire, you have really very high pressure. So, so, so the challenge for us was really um, to modify the technology so that you can also measure very tiny pressures inside the body. And at the same time, uh, to to develop sensors which are small enough to be placed in the in the, in, the, in the eye, you know, and we started a long time ago. And uh, meanwhile, technology is involved. So meanwhile, you can get technologies way smaller than maybe ten or fifteen years back. And that I think also played in our favor. You know, that uh, technologies uh, for 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 smartphones for any communication devices got so small, and this really allows us also now to get even smaller than we have been maybe five or 10 years back. So why don't you explain to the audience what um, implant data does and what your current technology is capable yes. of doing so they understand a little bit better. We can get into absolutely. the nitty gritty of the concept behind yeah. it, but I think just a technological overview may be useful right now. Yeah, absolutely. You know, the core piece is really the microsensor, uh, which is placed inside the eye um, uh, for measuring, telemetrically measuring uh, the pressure inside the eye. Uh, so we have now clinical experience with two locations. The first device was placed in the in cystillary sulcus at patients uh, 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 undergoing cataract surgery, and so you would place the sensor like an uh, like an add-on IOL in cystillary sulcus. And I think that was helpful to do some learnings. But we realized that's that's not the long-term solution. Then we started to place the sensor in the suprachoroidal space um, because we thought that's more. Um, gives more flexibility. You would allow, would also allow to address uh, uh, a higher number of uh, or a, a broader segment of glaucoma patients. But that microsensor is really key. It's it's passive means it's powered from the outset by RFID. So you apply a very weak magnetic field by an external device by which the sensor is activated, takes a pressure sensing, and sends the data to the external device. And then it goes back to sleep. So there is no battery inside. It's only taking a reading when it's activated from the outside. But there are different measurement modes. You can do an on-demand, so patient keeps a handheld device in front of the eye, and by that the measurement is initiated, or there's an, an antenna attached to the eye by which um, the device is programmed, like a halter monitor, to take readings at any chosen frequency. In the next step, we will integrate the RFID electronics right away in eye glasses so that data is fully automatically collected. Um, but it's important to understand it, it, there is no battery inside, and that's important because that does not limit your lifetime. If you would have a battery inside, that would reduce the li lifetime of your implant. So we have now uh, in vivo data for more than 10 years, and we have done also accelerated testing uh, showing that cis biosensors are stable and robust for more than 30 years. And with that, you know, you can really cover the lifespan of a usual glaucoma, uh, glaucoma patient. So that microsensor, as I said, is, is really proprietary uh, and is key. And then we have that external infrastructure, as I said, we have uh, RFID devices for the data um, acquisition and also for the data transfer. From these external devices, the data goes straight into web-based database where all the patient data is collected and analyzed and, uh, and then can be presented to the eye doctor via an expert user software. Uh, so the eye doctors can really log in and can see while the patient is at home, they can see uh, 
what was the pressure the last three months, six months whatsoever, and they can also set an alert. So let's say if a patient's pressure is beyond a critical level, let's say 25 millimercury, then there would be an automated alert informing the eye doctor, dear, dear doctors, miss, the pressure is now 25, please take a closer look at this patient. Um, so uh, we said we're really introducing remote monitoring of IOP. Um, and we also have a smartphone app by which patients can also follow their DC or CI pressure. Patients really, <clears throat> we learned, especially early adopting patients, they want to know what is my pressure? What uh, am I, am I, is my pressure well under control? Is my medication working for me? So it's, at the end, it's really a combination of hardware uh, and software. At the end, it's a digital solution, you know, because it's a data, which is really, which is really important, of course. See, hardware is important to gather the data, but the real deals that benefit is that data we are providing to the eye doctors as well as to the patients. I think people don't necessarily understand how um, you know critical this information is, and and it's fast. It's always been fascinating to me that um, the management decisions that we make regarding glaucoma, although they've changed recently, let's say in the last fifteen to twenty years, at least significantly rely upon. The measurement of intraocular pressure. And those measurements occur four times a year inside of a doctor's office using technology that's 150 years old. How old is Goldman tonometry for the most part? Yeah, old, right? I mean, yeah. it's pretty old. And, you know, and even though we've developed fancier technologies, you know, rebound tonometry and pneumotonometry and other ways of measuring intraocular pressure. The fact is that we're still measuring it infrequently and making long-term therapeutic decisions. I think that the lack of data regarding intraocular pressure has led to us, you know, whether it's appropriate or progressive, I don't really know, to focus more on structural function abnormalities. So we make decisions not only use, utilizing pressure, but also utilizing visual field testing, visual field testing, and optical coherence tomography, and all these other ways of evaluating the structure and function of the optic nerve. But the only modifiable factor that we still treat is intraocular pressure. Absolutely even, right. Yeah, it's it's unbelievable. Even if you make a diagnosis that somebody is getting worse without measuring their pressure by using a field or an OCT, you still have to modify the pressure in order to institute therapy. And the only time we just, we we know whether or not we're making a difference is when the patient comes to the office. Right, correct. You know, and, and think about it. Um, uh, right now, you're taking OCTs or visual fields maybe every every year or maybe twice a year. Right. But in between office visits, and you know, visual field, as we all know, is very very subjective. Uh, so. Um, yeah. And think about it. And now you have all the IUP data in between this um, uh, OCTs and visual fields. And then might be, uh, and, and that might be really revealing why are certain patients uh, progressing and others not. You know, I think it makes also OCT or in-office diagnostic much more powerful because now the eye doctor also understand what happened in between, between these office visits and why is the OCT like it is now. So I think it's it make it's making you know we are not here to replace in-office diagnostic, not at all. Right. Right. We are here to really complement in-office um, uh, diagnostic and make it more powerful and empower patients as well as uh, eye doctors to provide early on better care uh, and better, better, better therapies. Well, I, again, I think it's, it comes down to the fundamental understanding that people may not really understand exactly, you know, nor should they, 
understand exactly how glaucoma is managed, but the only modifiable risk factor that we have at present time is intraocular pressure. And obviously, the more data you have regarding intraocular pressure, the more robust your ability is to evaluate the impact of your therapy. Absolutely. And, and understanding the impact of your therapy is obviously critical to making sure that patients don't lose vision. What's what's maybe equally, and you may want to comment on this, but what's what maybe is equally more important um, is that the ability to measure um, intraocular pressure inside the eye um, at various times of the day will potentially allow us to really understand the role of intraocular pressure on the pathogenesis of glaucoma, because we have a condition called low pressure glaucoma, where the pressure is never measured at a high level and patients still develop optic nerve damage consistent with glaucoma. So maybe this will determine whether or not low pressure glaucoma really is undetected high pressure glaucoma like everything else. We do not know. It's impossible to collect enough data on enough patients to do that unless you're sort of some sadistic lunatic who keeps their patients up all night and checks their pressures every hour while they're yeah. you know, in hospital beds or things like that. But that's not going to really happen in, in, in mainstream medical care. So this is really the only way where we may get some of these answers. You know, and and and, and maybe a big chunk of that normal tension glaucoma patients, maybe patients just not being so adherent and only being taking their eye drops before they go and see the eye doctor, you know? And, and, uh... Well, that's that's a whole other aspect. I mean, obviously the observation of compliance, right? I mean, you have the ability to track intraocular pressure where you can identify abnormalities that could be related to lack of adherence to, to medical regimen. I mean, there are so many things that can be changed regarding the management of glaucoma with this type of data. Yeah, because absolutely. because pressure is the only modifiable risk factor that we have. Yeah, absolutely, and it's it's um, it's useful for uh, or it's 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 helping for any therapy if it's medication, if it's taking eye drops, if it's uh, surgical uh, therapies, if it's mix, uh, if it's you know we have now first sustained release drug devices. Uh, in the field, you know, also for these, it's important to understand, okay, now the sustained release drug device is kind of uh, getting ineffective. Now we have to do a revision or we have to go back to normal eye drops. I think also for these patients uh, or for any, for it's, it's helpful for any therapy. You cannot really say it's only helpful for that kind of patient segment. It's, at the end, it's helpful for any, any, any therapy um, um, at, at any glaucoma patient. Absolutely. So what are the, so where what are the the challenges for the company right now with regarding technology? Where are the what are the things that you're going to be focusing on now in order to make this yeah. product more robust and reach the mainstream? And then yeah. you know after that we'll talk about the future. But I think that for now I think people should understand where the technology is yes. and what you're focused on in the near term. Absolutely. You know we have a a very robust technology development. It's a technology platform. You know we already validated it in ICP intracranial pressure sensing and then we modified it for for use also. In in, in uh, ophthalmic indications. <clears throat> and as I said, the technology itself, it's very robust. Uh, and now in the eye, we know we have really long-term data showing it's safe, it's performing very well. Uh, we have 10-year in vivo data. We have in Europe obtained CE marking, also under the new regulation, under the new MDR. And we have been also happy to uh, obtain uh, FDA breakthrough device designations. Also, also FDA uh, is acknowledging in us that we are addressing an important need. Um, right now, the sensors are either implanted along cataract or glaucoma surgery, which presents a certain limitation. It, it lowers the hurdle to apply the sensors, but um, to be honest, 
the current sensors we are using from a from a technology point of view, from a uh, semiconductor technology point of view, this is really old technology, still leading the most the best technology around, but from a size side, you know, uh, it's really large technology. And so we are right now working on miniaturizing the sensors by just applying state-of-the-art semiconductor technologies. Uh, and with that, we are able to real, realize um, a, 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 an injectable sensor, not requiring surgery anymore. And that really would broaden up the market significantly. Um, and we are in the process, we will have uh, first prototypes very soon. And we are also envisioning to integrate the sensor, for example, in an IOL. Uh, because we know that around 20% of the patients undergoing the cataract surgery are also hypertensive patients or, or even glaucoma patients. So also combining it with other therapeutic devices uh, will allow us to expand um, uh, ad ad addressable patient segments. But I think really key is the first miniaturization makes the devices even smaller. And you know, it's, it's a typically um, evolve, um, a cycle of evolvement. We have seen it in so many other spaces, you know, in IOLs, it became uh, less invasive and less invasive and uh, less smaller incisions. And, and we will see the same with our, our sensing technology. So I think that's uh, the most important next activity for us. Besides of the fact, you know, that we will do some early market validation uh, in Europe with CE marking. We have uh, several eye centers, early adopting eye centers lined up. Um, who are ready to get uh, the product into patients this year. Um, um, I think that early market validation will be also key to show, okay, at, an, at a larger number of patients, we have done now around 100 patients, and as I said, the longest will be 10 years, but um, you also want to show at a larger number of patients, you know, that this technology is working very well, that's beneficial, that it's really helping eye doctors as, a, as well as patients. Yeah, I think that it's people, you know, uh, might underestimate the amount of effort that's got to go into not only the creation of the technology, but also into the creation of how we are going to change the paradigm for the monitoring of patients with intraocular yeah. pressure. This is adding a whole new dimension um, to the care of patients. You know, you, you go yeah. back to the days, like you said, of, um, you know, let's say Holter monitors or loop monitors now yeah. where you only knew what was going on with the patient when they came to the office. Now you've got to develop protocols and, and processes for not only collecting this data from the patient, but then integrating it into the practice of right. glaucoma care. And it's, right. it's not easy. And, and the fact that you've got, you know, some long-term real world data, and the ability to already have a physician facing interface that might make that, you know, a little bit smoother going forward is a huge accomplishment yeah. at this point to be able to already have those or some of those um, pieces of the puzzle in place is, yeah. is a big step. You, you know, and all, let me also mention, you know, that we, we are very dedicated now to, or we are in the process to move the company over to the US. I think Europe is really good for early validation of the technology for early validation, um, and maybe also some early market validation, but the real market, to be honest, is the US and also the reimbursement situation market access is way more attractive versus Europe. I think I said, uh, I've done that in the past, you know, bring companies over to the US. So we have already started to establish an operation at the West Coast, um, because I think, is being successful, or, or, or let, let me put this also this way, you know, I think the US ophthalmologists are even more open to kind of this kind of disruptive technologies and innovations and also patients, I think, and that's the reason for us why, why we decided um, um, uh, some time ago, now it's time to get, get that technology to get the company to the US because it's where, where the key market is for our product. Yeah, it's interesting. And it's, you know, 
the U.S. has this amazingly long-standing history of incorporating, you know, incredible new technologies and paying for it by just not paying the doctors any longer, which right. which is which is great for the companies, bad, yeah. bad for the doctors that you know we keep making less and less in terms of reimbursement. But they are always very active for that, and I think in one of the most or one of its more prescient maneuvers, the FDA has already created codes for yeah. remote monitoring. Yeah, and absolutely. The, the fact that those codes already exist is actually, I, and I think that they sort of probably were introduced and adopted right after COVID, maybe. And that was one of the impetus for them to say, hey, we got to figure out how to get people compensated for monitoring patients when they're not in the office. And those codes are sitting out there waiting to get used. So I think Absolutely. That the, the, the government as a payer is willing to to um, reimburse this. Um, and you know how they reimburse the technology and the procedure is a different issue, but at least for the monitoring component, it yes. exists. I think that's a huge incentive, you know, there are these codes you, you, which you mentioned, which are established, you know, allows the eye doctor or would allow in the US the eye doctor to bill up to 200 US dollars a month per patient for these kind of remote monitoring and management services. And I think, of course, this kind of reimbursement will be cut down maybe sometimes in future, but <laughs> sure there will. are codes in place, you know, and, 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 and that's uh, uh, what we don't have in Europe, for example. Uh, right. So I think that's certainly a, a huge driver of of, uh, of this business. And you know, we also uh, just uh, just to mention, you know, we in the most intense lockdown period, we also did a study with some of our patients, a total of thirty seven patients, and that was only for two months. And so patients were not allowed to see the eye doctor, and uh, so we really showed that by remote monitoring, uh, out of that. 37 patients, around one third of the patient, the, the, the treatment was um, adjusted remotely. Right. Uh, and at even one patient, they decided, right. okay, the patient has to come into, into, the, into, into the clinics getting an eye surgery. So I think this uh, ability to really remotely monitor and manage patients will be so crucial in the coming years because the number of patients will explode. Right. <laughs> yep. and yeah, it's, I, it's absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, I incorrectly referenced FDA as the code developer at CMS for the codes. FDA right. is the is the breakthrough status and fast tracking. Yes. And I think that's yes. I think that it's it's it, it's an example of two agencies, you know, realizing a particular need. And, you know, I I can't imagine they acted, you know, in unison, but they certainly had the same level of 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 insight into into what's going to be needed. And I, I agree with you. I think that it will speed the ability for companies like yours to provide this meaningful information to physicians on, on behalf of their patients. And um, I think it is ready. I think the market is ready to, to, to accept this. And, and you can't underestimate the fact that um, reimbursement is, you know, it's what drives behavior, uh, whether people want to believe that or not, it is the case. And unless there's a way for doctors to get compensated for doing the work of monitoring these patients and evaluating the data that's presented to them and allowing them to make a therapeutic decision, it's never going to, it's never going to take hold. So this is one of those rare instances where the reimbursement um, has actually put in place prior to um, clinically available technology. And we applaud the governmental agencies for doing that in the right way this time. Right, right. So, so for the last few minutes, Max, why don't you give us a little bit of a insight into where uh, implant data is going to go? Like, what's the future for the company? What are you guys looking to do um, moving forward? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think, as I said, we uh, will do a first launch in Europe this year. We uh, will also start an ID study in the US this year. 
to create uh, generate trust data in the US. And we are working on, a, I think, a, a very, very interesting product pipeline. Uh, so we are, have started uh, already some time ago to also combine our sensor with therapeutic devices. So kind of realizing an IOP responsive therapeutic device. As you all know, uh, therapy adherence of patients is always a big issue. We all know that patients are not all the time really adhering to take the right drops. And there are now sustained release drug devices, but these are not smart devices just to release eye drop. Uh, or an uh, API over time, but not in a smart way. So we are working on a solution where the sensor is really actuating the uh, release of the API for the pressure lowering. Uh, still a long way to go because now we are talking about a therapeutic device, but I personally am 100% sure in 10 years, maybe earlier, something like that will be on the market, a kind of a closed loop system to really uh, manage glaucoma without any uh, need of the patient to take eye drops and only raising eye drops, you know, or an, a pressure lowering API when the pressure is beyond a critical level. I think we've talked to many people and everyone believes this could be the holy grail, you know, if you have kind of, kind of, kind of a closed loop system, uh, which for um, a couple of years really ensures, you know, that, that a patient's pressure is well under control, independent from taking eye drops or doing any other things. Since I think uh, our, our next big task after having completed this uh, big task, having a, an implantable microsensor for IO, continual IP, uh, IOP sensing. Now the next step is to really combine it with a therapeutic device. Yeah, I think if for, for people who may not understand specifically, we're, we're talking about a product that measures the pressure and when it's higher than what you think the patient's pressure should be, it becomes active. It lowers the pressure in the eye by allowing a flow of fluid somehow out of the eye into some other system in the body, whether it's natural or you know unnatural reservoir or whatever it is, um, and therefore regulates the intraocular pressure inside the eye continuously. And I think if you ask most glaucoma specialists, they'd say, if you can make everybody's pressure eight, you probably would see significantly <laughs> less glaucoma. So yeah. if you have the ability to do that with a, you know, autonomous device, then you, re you really do change the, the treatment paradigm for how glaucoma is managed. Right, right. Absolutely. But you can't do that unless you know what the pressure is in real time. So you have to have something inside the eye measuring it in order to do that. Correct. That's key, you know, that you have a really reliable and robust sensor. Otherwise, you would have big issues with the FDA convincing them, you know, that yes, you this will. is, yeah. So I, I've always, I've said this before, Max, and people who may have listened to other podcasts I've done have heard me say this, that the ultimate goal for me is to try and make sure that technology exists that will allow me to practice uh, glaucoma from the golf course. So that's my goal is to be able to treat patients while I am in a golf cart or walking on a golf course from my phone. That is the goal. Perfect. And, and honestly, I think that you guys are on the way to potentially helping me realize that dream. So um, with that, I want to say thank you uh, very much on behalf of the listening audience for giving us some insight into implant data and hopefully what will be the future of um, glaucoma care. Absolutely. Very, very glad um, having participated on that podcast. Very much appreciating. It was big fun. Bro. All right. Thanks, everybody. Bye.